Before we get started in our Bible study today, I want to let you know of an event that's taking place tonight, which I've been planning for for several weeks, but because of the delay that's involved in me recording this program, this is the first time I've been able to tell you about it. And that will be a visit to Michiana by my Israeli friend Omer Eshel. Omer is the CEO and co-founder of the Bible Comes to Life Education and Tour Center. Uh, he's the person that we use whenever we go on our trips to Israel. He's a, a man that is well, well, he is well read and well investigated. He he knows the things that you need to hear whenever you make a trip to Israel. And so he will be providing us a little personal perspective on the things that are going on in the Holy Land right now. And so if you will come out, the program itself will be at 7 o'clock. Uh, we'll uh, plan for a Q&A session afterward at 8. Uh, but we will uh, open everything up with like a, a meet and greet time at uh, 6.30. So please join me tonight at the Deer Run Church of Christ, which is located on South Ironwood in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, meet my friend Omer, and we will pray together for both Israel and the Middle East and the situation there. I want you to open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter number 2, which is where we left off uh, last session. Peter is writing this as a follow-up to his first letter. And now we know that letter went to the believers in northern and western and a little bit of the central part of what we call Turkey today. A lot of that area, particularly the western portion of it, was a place that the Apostle Paul had done so much ministry. And it is my contention that once uh, Paul was at Rome, that Peter kind of moved into that same region of what we call Asia Minor or Turkey and was doing some follow-up work there, particularly amongst the Jewish believers in Jesus. And then when I think he got word that Paul had been released, I think Peter went to Rome in order to kind of pick up where Paul had left off there as an apostle to the people in the capital city of the Roman world. So I think that happened uh, in the second half of 63. I think he wrote his first letter in 63. And then I believe uh, as a new year uh, for uh, the Jewish people began, I think he wrote a second letter in 64. And that's the letter we're looking at right now. And I believe it's prompted an awful lot by the fact that false teaching is growing in the church. Now, we already knew that was coming. There were warnings in Paul's visits and in his letters that false teaching inside the church was going to be a problem. This is one of the reasons he put such a high 
focus on uh, getting the right people in spiritual leadership in those uh, congregations. But here is Peter then, warning of the same sort of thing. And then he starts using examples as to what God will do with such troublemakers. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. So that's the past, uh, particularly amongst the Jewish people he's thinking about. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So we already know that that was happening. Uh, Paul, when he was talking about the Judaizers, he referred to their activities as being kind of surreptitious and covert, that they were, they were sneaking in and spying out the liberty uh, that believers had in Jesus Christ. Well, Peter, you know, has been reading Paul's letters, and he's being prompted by the same Holy Spirit, and the same situations uh, are on his mind. And so he says, there will be these troublemakers that will worm their way in to the church, and they will bring with them the things that will destroy churches and de destroy individual believers, these destructive heresies. Now, keep in mind, heresy, um, in its most strict sense, means a choice. It has the idea of a group of people that have chosen to be in the same group. Uh, it, it was a political type word, by the way. And so in the, in the way that it's being used in the scripture is you've got a bunch of people who have chosen to be followers of false teaching, false information, and they are getting that into the actual church structure itself, making it look like that's the legitimate thing. And so that's what the uh, that's what the Judaizers were up to, and then we've talked about another group that is starting to develop. Uh, they will have a more formal name attached to them later, and that would be the Gnostics. The Gnostics wanted to say that all flesh was evil, and therefore. They taught that Jesus couldn't possibly be physical. He had to have been a phantom presence that uh, people misunderstood as being physical. And so that's already starting to pop when Peter is writing his letters, because he kind of hinted at some of that himself. John the Apostle will be the one that really hits on that one. Uh, but I think that that also might be in mind for Peter here. So they are, they're going to bring in these destructive heresies, and then he puts this line, even denying the master who bought them. So they will challenge Jesus' identity and position within the story of history. And that is exactly what the Judaizers were doing. That was exactly 
what the Gnostics did as well, and pretty much every single troublemaking heresy in the history of the church challenged the identity of Jesus Christ. So always watch out uh, when people start talking about Jesus in ways that are distinctly different than what we already have right here in the Scripture in front of us. And Peter says that by doing this, they will be bringing upon themselves swift destruction. God is not going to just ignore such false teaching. He is not going to give them a pass. Uh, Verse number two, continuing to describe these false teachers. Many will follow their sensuality. Uh, The word literally means incontinence. That is, they just don't even try to control themselves uh, in their in their passions, in their desires. They just let it go. Uh, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And that is still happening today, folks. There are certain people who take positions of leadership in the church that just engage in whatever their bodies feel like. And when news of that gets out, It is the gospel that gets the black eye. It is the church of Jesus Christ, the genuine, authentic church of Jesus Christ that gets the bad publicity, the bad press. And so because of these bad guys, because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. It will be blasphemed. In their greed... You know, their desire to have more and more and more. And immediately, I would guess most of your minds went to those greedy radio and TV preachers that seem to always, always demand that more money be sent their direction. You know, I can't fly on a commercial plane. You have to give me money so that I can have a private jet. One private jet's not enough. I need two or three. I need a a special aircraft, I need a big house, or I need a big special car, or fancy suits, and lots of... All of that is garbage. And we as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, have got to speak against that from the Scripture. And here is one of those passages. In their greed, their desire to have more and more for themselves, they will exploit you with false words. They are con men. That's what they are, folks. They are conning people out of their cash, out of their possessions, so that they can be much better off. And they do it using Bible words. They use it, uh, they do it using religious parlance. And it's not right. And it is so not right that they are facing the judgment of God. Unless they repent, which all of us should pray they will. Unless they repent, they are facing an eternity outside the presence of the true and living God. 
And that is not a pleasant place to be. It says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So their choice to engage in this type of heretical and greedy behavior is not new. It's been on the landscape for a long time, and therefore what will happen to them is already pretty much in evidence through history. And then Peter gives some examples. It's interesting, the first example he uses is not even human beings. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned... Now, the reference here is to Genesis chapter 6. The angels who took and used human women to apparently uh, make some sort of hybrid army for themselves uh, in the days before the flood. God judged them. And by the way, um, if this is new information for a lot of you, you should go back and listen to my teaching uh, from the book of Genesis on Genesis chapter 6. Uh, these angels, uh, the ancient world and the ancient teachers understood, paid a huge penalty for causing trouble uh, for humanity. And actually, their actions precipitated uh, humanity going so badly downhill uh, that the flood was the resolution of the problem. So if God did not spare those angels when they sinned, but cast them into, and our English Standard Version that we've been using says hell here, but it is not the common word for hell. Uh, the common word for hell when we think about the place of eternal punishment is Gehenna, uh, Tophet in the Old Testament. Uh, this is actually a New Testament era word. Uh, it's a verb, strangely enough, instead of a noun. Uh, it is being cast into Tartarus. Tartarus was the place where the, the troublemaker godlings uh, were thrown in the Greek mythology and in the Roman mythology. Uh, they were rebels against the original gods. Uh, and sometimes it involved uh, messing around uh, with uh, humanity's um, life and uh, the plans of the original gods. Uh, and these titans, I think they're called in some places, uh, were put in a special place of confinement. So that was a widespread cultural understanding. And so Peter's just piggybacking on that. He's saying what happened was God put these angels of Genesis 6 into the pit to await final judgment. They are waiting their ultimate consignment to hell. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, we can kind of see a little bit of this. 
because some of these demonic beings, we, we call them demonic in the sense that they are, their mind is against the mind of God. Uh, these entities are released out of the pit for a brief period of time uh, during uh, the uh, bowl and trumpet judgments of Revelation. Uh, so all of this is tied together in Peter's mind. He says, if God didn't spare those angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, cast them into Tartarus, cast them into the pit, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So if God can take rebel supernatural beings known as angels when they misbehaved and put them on ice, if you will, put them into a place where they are waiting their final judgment, then he can take care of these false teachers. He, he has more capability than necessary to deal with bad humans. Uh, speaking of bad humans, that's the example that Peter goes to next, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, so in the days of the flood, which you already know Peter uh, has had some interest in, uh, is in his first uh, letter, and now he's going to mention it again in this second letter. So if he didn't spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald or a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So if God can destroy an entire world of bad humans and still be ready to judge them in eternity, then he can certainly take care of the troublemakers in the church. He can certainly take care of the rebels who are using the leadership positions in the church to line their own pockets and to satisfy their own physical desires uh, in a way that's not appropriate. And speaking of physical desires in a way that's not appropriate, that's his third example, verse number six. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. So this goes back again, book of Genesis. All these are in book of Genesis. Uh, God had determined that the five cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah being the chief among them, were so bad that he could not allow them to continue their existence on planet Earth. Uh, remember, Abraham tried to um, engage in some uh, barter, some uh, attempt to get God to be merciful if at least 10 people could be found that were righteous. And of course, you couldn't even find that many. Well, they were so bad that God wiped them from the face of the earth. It would appear uh, that the Dead Sea, at least the southern basin area, uh, may be the only thing left of this destruction zone. 
but all that whole area seems to have been totally changed from a paradise valley to a desert where you don't want to go down there uh, unless you got uh, plenty of water uh, and know your way around. It would be dangerous otherwise. And so if God knew how to deal with them because of their sinfulness, because of the fact that they were, among other things, greedy and self-centered, and they were so self-satisfied that they were in, they were experimenting in pushing the boundaries of behavior, uh, including in sexual areas, uh, they become an example of where God's patience ends. It says, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So all of this is just him laying the groundwork, saying, if God in the past has been able to judge sinful behavior by angels and the antediluvian civilization and the sinful population of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet he can still bring righteous people through that, then he can get the church through this time period of bad teachers and bad leadership. Uh, verse 7 continues, If he rescued righteous Lot, remember Lot was Abraham and Sarah's nephew, uh, his dad had passed away, uh, and so when uh, Abraham and Sarah took off for the promised land, even though that's they didn't know where the promised land was just yet, uh, they took Lot along as their ward. And things went so well for them all together uh, that Lot... Uh, and Abraham's um, herdsmen couldn't be in the same area together. There was just too many animals. And so they split up. And Abraham allowed Lot to pick the direction that he would go. And he looked down in that Paradise Valley, that is now the Dead Sea Valley, and chose that for his place. And it says that he pitched his tent, his encampment tent toward the city of Sodom, and then eventually we find out he actually moved into the city of Sodom and was trying to raise a family there. And that was not the best choice on Lot's uh, behalf. Let's just make that very clear. Uh, but he still did have a heart toward God. We know that. It says it right here. Verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So he was broken. He was brokenhearted over this society that he had chosen to live in, but which he did not participate in. Uh, and it grieved him uh, because he still had a heart for God. 
uh, and God basically forced him to leave uh, for the sake of Abraham, remember. Uh, his two daughters came with him. Uh, his wife started out with him, but ended up staying behind, and that was a tragedy as well for the family. And then things really fell apart in his life. But for Peter's point here is, if God can deal out justice to unrighteous behavior and can even bring judgment in a cataclysmic fashion, and through the midst of that still bring some of the people that love him uh, into the next phase of their life, then he can handle what's going on in the church in the first century, second, third, fourth, right up into our own modern century. Verse number nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So, God knows how to make a way of escape that we might be able to endure these times of trials. That's a reference to the promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13, which I've told you you need to memorize. So God knows how to rescue the godly from their trials or through their trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God knows how to deal with these troublemakers. He might actually take them off the board, if you want to use like a, a game metaphor. He might remove them from this life, but he can still keep them accountable for what will happen in eternity because he's done that before with the angels with the antediluvian civilization, and with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse number 10, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. Now that is kind of an introduction to what's coming because of the false teachers of Peter's day. Uh, he says God can especially deal with those that are all about the flesh, all about doing what their bodies want to do, regardless of God's intention, regardless of God's design. And for those in leadership that have zero respect for the supernatural world, including what's already happened to the demonic world, to the, the evil world of, of the angels, the fallen angels. So we'll mark our place right there and get back into more detail next time we're into the Word.